You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, we are continuing on through our sermon series, uh, which we are calling A Thrill of Hope. Pastor Robert last week set out in some ways what is the definition for our need of hope? That we were born into perfection, that we were created, humanity was, to live with God in peace, in perfection, in His presence, to be known by God and to know Him. And yet because of sin, we have utterly lost that place. And yet, as Pastor Robert preached for us, there was a promise that was given. First, in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord says that one day the serpent, the enemy of our soul, will be crushed by one who will come. And that one is Jesus. Well, today we are in Luke chapter 2, one of the most probably famous of the Christmas passages of Scripture. This passage comes directly after Luke tells the story of the birth of Christ. And, and so I want you to kind of get your, your arms and your, your, your mind around where we are. Luke has just proclaimed this birth, this, this coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the fulfillment of the promises that had been made all throughout the Old Testament, the deliverance of the gift that all of humanity so desperately needed. Luke briefly tells the story of the birth of Jesus. He says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph, he also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke, who's likely recording this primarily as what it is, historical fact, gives us just briefly the layout of this amazing occurrence. Now Luke, in the rest of his gospel, is going to in, uh, unpack just who Jesus is and just how significant this moment is and all that it means. But he goes on from this historical fact that Jesus, the Son of God, has finally come. And then he zooms out just a little bit as he begins to show us who this Savior has come for and what the coming of this Savior is going to mean. And we're told in verse 8 that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, my, my kiddos have grown up really only in church plants. 
So we moved in the spring of 2010 to a suburb of Chicago. And after trying to find a church home here, there, and just about everywhere, see, we had this uh, two-year-old. And this two-year-old that we loved more than anything refused to go into a nursery. And he didn't just refuse to go into a nursery. When we took him with us into the service, he would get what I would call perfect timing. He would be silent all through the singing. And then just as everyone sat down and the preacher would get up and he would open his Bible and all would go quiet, my child would begin to scream. And so weeks after weeks of trying to find a church home where, by God's miraculous grace, our child would allow us to get all the way through a service, we were driving back home and we saw this little A-frame sign a block away from our apartment that we were staying in. And here was uh, my wife and I's most highly theological decision for our family. Hey, we'll be able to make it home quicker for lunch when our child starts to scream halfway through the service if we try out that church. So we showed up to that church only to find out that they were on week two of their existence. A brand new church that had just been planted and we said to the Lord, God, if you will let our child go into the nursery and we make it through the service, like, we'll do anything. One day, we'll, like, plant a church or something. No, we didn't say that. Uh, but it felt like we did. We said, God, God we're here. We'll, we'll know that it's home. Like, we'll, we'll dedicate our lives to this church if you will just let us get through the entire service. And our two-year-old, who will remain unnamed, but which was the oldest of our children, <laughs> went into the nursery, and he stayed the entire time and Rachel and I got to have, like, human adult conversation and hear the words of a sermon for the first time in months. And that became home. Now, that's like a 15-minute introduction to tell you this. We've only been a part of church plants for our kids' lives. Which means we've never gotten the joy of having our kids be in, like, a big Christmas pageant. You know, like, one of those, like... Just kind of moments where there's 60 kids on stage and everybody has to have a central part retelling the story of Jesus. But I got to be in those as a, as a child. Now, I never got the role of Joseph, right, which was the role that most young men wanted. And if you didn't get that role, then you wanted to be one of the three wise men. But if you didn't get that role... Then you got to dress up in a bathrobe with a towel wrapped around your head and stand off to a side silently as a shepherd. Right? And everybody oohs and ahs and we, we take photos and we, we chuckle at how cute these shepherd children were. But the truth is that shepherds weren't considered by any stretch of the imagination cute or cuddly. These were men who lived their life far more in the company of animals than they did in the company of humans. And as a matter of fact, these shepherds, it's likely, who lived outside of Bethlehem, were the shepherds who were in charge of raising the flocks of lambs 
that would eventually be slaughtered at the temple in Jerusalem. These men raised lambs that would one day be put to death for the sins of the people of God. Shepherds were considered backwards, rural, small town. Maybe just to put it simply, they were considered lowly. But these weren't just lowly men. They were lowly men of a lowly people. They were shepherds of a people that were captives. The Jews that had been subjugated and persecuted for decades and decades. You know, the truth of the matter is that these men were the definition of marginalized. And yet for some reason, after declaring and telling the story of the birth of the King of Kings, Luke moves from the highest example of perfect humanity, which is Jesus, and now he zooms in on these shepherds out of the field. Now listen, uh, before we moved here to help plant Redeemer, we planted a church in a small town in southern Illinois. Now my guess is if I say Illinois to you, most people immediately think, oh, I know Illinois, Chicago. But there's like an entire state below Chicago <laughs> that almost no one intentionally goes to unless you are like traversing an interstate to get through Illinois. Right? But somewhere down far south, about four hours of Chicago, is a small little town of about 8,000 people called Muscuda, Illinois. One, I would be shocked if you could spell it. Two, I would be doubly shocked if you could find it on a map. But this is the town where I grew up. It's a town five minutes away from where Rachel, my wife, grew up. And we went back in 2016 to plant a gospel outpost in this town. Now, this was a town of a varied demographic. Right? We had plenty of people who lived in trailer parks. We had a lot of people in the midst of financial hardship. We had several people dealing with unemployment. We had single parents. We had people in the midst of or recovering from messy divorces. We had military men and women. We had upper middle class people. We had the whole spectrum. But here's why I tell you that story, because quite honestly, demographically speaking, if you look to the left or the right in this place, most of us would not find ourselves to be a church of marginalized people. Listen, we live in a town that quite honestly, when we talked about first coming down here to plant, my response was, we can't plant a church in Georgetown. Because we have five kids and there's no way we can find a house in Georgetown that we can afford. Right? This is just the community that Georgetown is. But, but here's what I want you to actually fix your mind on. And the truth is this, that all of humanity is actually lowly and marginalized. And here's why I mean that and why I say that. 
Because all humanity has fallen from a great height. The psalmist says that humanity was created just a little lower than angels. We were created in perfection to walk in the Garden of Eden face to face with God. And yet now, because of sin and the curse, all of humanity finds themselves to be feeble and frail. Like if you don't believe me, this is my favorite uh, illustration. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to concentrate really hard. Okay? Concentrate really hard. You can close your eyes if you want to. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to make your heart beat. How'd that go for it? Anybody able to add in an extra beat just by trying? No. Okay, here, let's try this. Close your eyes, concentrate really hard. I just, I want you to force the oxygenated blood in your heart out to your extremities. Or just force a few more synapses in your brain to fire off. Like, here's, here's the truth. None of us can add an extra beat to our heart with all of our efforts. Uh, just this past week, I was reading a couple days ago, if you've been following the World Cup, uh, uh, a reporter who was in his late 40s, just a little bit older than I am, who had wife and small kids, had been in perfectly fine health. His heart stopped beating in the midst of a World Cup game. They couldn't resuscitate him, and he died. All of humanity is feeble and frail. Our lives are temporary and beyond the physical nature of being lowly. We all, as humanity, tend to feel isolated, alone, forgotten about. Survey after survey after survey of humanity finds that the greatest problem that most people feel is that they feel unknown, they feel unloved. They feel lonely, depressed, and anxious. And it doesn't matter if you have seven figures in your bank account or one. Humanity finds itself broken. We find ourselves to be the people that we are not wanting to be, but less than that, just the people that we happen to be today. I'll give you a, a, a small example. Uh, so I'm a pastor and a preacher, which means I'm supposed to not just know these things, but also really believe these things. But since Rachel and I moved down to the area, I've noticed myself with my kids specifically over the last five months really struggling with frustration and anger and a temper and honestly speaking to them in ways that is far less than honoring and how the Lord speaks to me. And about two weeks ago, after, after a particularly ugly moment on my part, my wife lovingly sat me down and simply said, what's going on? Can you see what's happening? And she was gracious and she was kind about it. But the truth of the matter is, Immediately, when she began to speak about it, I felt 
alone, isolated, like the only really broken, sinful person in the room. I felt like a failure and utterly felt like the man, not that I wanted to be, but the man that I had failed to be. And you don't have to nod your head and agree with me that you know the experience of being feeble and frail and less than, of being far lower than you would want to be. Because Scripture declares that it's true even if you won't admit it. But Luke, in chapter 2, tells the story of hope for lowly people. Here's where we're going today, quickly. Here's what Luke tells us and how there's hope for the lowly in the coming of Christ first. Christ changes our fear into joy. Christ changes our fear into joy. Second, Christ changes our lowliness into dignity. Christ changes our lowliness into dignity. And finally, Christ changes our exile into intimacy. Christ changes our exile into intimacy. First, Christ changes our joy into fear. After introducing us to the shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, Luke goes on and says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all people. In the midst of this dark night outside of Bethlehem, we're told that an angel of the Lord appears to these lowly shepherds. Again, this counters the image of what we get when we think of our Christmas pageants. Typically, angels in those pageants are cute young girls dressed up all in white, maybe with a handful of glitter on them and a beautiful little halo floating above their head. Or if they're one of my children, probably a little bit cockeyed and half Right, But the truth of the matter is, as much as we love to think of angels as beautiful and wonderful, throughout Scripture, when an angel or messenger of the Lord appears, the response is not oohs and ahs, but shock and awe. People fall on their face in fear and are overwhelmed. The shepherd's response here mirrors just that. We're told that when the angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord shines around them, they were filled with a great fear. I love the original language. It actually says that they feared a great fear, right? As if somebody, Luke or someone interviewed the shepherds and said, how did you feel? And they were like, uh, we were afraid. Like we were afraid, like with fear of being afraid. Really afraid was our fear. Do you understand that we feared a fear? Like, it's like that was the only thing they could think of. I don't have words. I can just tell you what I felt. And what did you feel? Fear. Why were these shepherds so afraid? Was it simply the brightness or the light or the strange figure? 
And I think Luke accentuates why they were afraid. As much as they were afraid of the angel, they were afraid because the glory of the Lord shone around them. Glory in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, comes from a word that means weighty. And it kind of helps to convey what it means when the glory of God appears. That he's heavy. That his magnitude is is great. That he's overwhelming, unfathomable, incalculable, unapproachable seemingly. It's as if the, the weight of God when he walks in the room feels crushing. Like the, the brightness of God is so bright that it hurts our eyes. Or that the size of the Lord is so great that it fills the room and it feels like we have no space left for us. The glory of the Lord overwhelms the shepherds. And it makes them fear. But the shepherds also fear, quite honestly, because fear is natural to us as humans. Fear comes primarily from not being in control. And if there's one thing that's true about all of humanity, it's that we're not in control, but we really want to be. Right? Fear comes from being inadequate. It comes from what has happened in our past and what we think about might happen in the future and the fact that we are ill-equipped to keep what we have and we desire and to grasp a hold of what we want. Like, I, again, I, I, I count myself as a fairly confident person. I've, I've made a life of trying to be enough when I walk into the room. But if I'm being honest with you, I am a fearful man. Raising five kids makes me constantly afraid. Being in a marriage and being called to love and shepherd and lead a wife makes me constantly afraid. Shepherding a church and being held accountable to the Lord for your souls makes me constantly afraid. And quite honestly, just being a guy who I want other people to think well of leaves me constantly afraid of other people's opinions. We are a fearful people, not primarily because of who we are, but because we are people. The shepherds are afraid. If you don't believe my explanation or you can't find yourself in my shoes, before the Lord God produces and pronounces any curse over Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin, before he tells them what's going to happen, we're told that immediately after Adam and Eve take of the fruit, eat, they hide. Why? Because they were afraid. So what does the angel tell the shepherds in the midst of their fear? And I love it. I should just try this with my parenting sometime. The shepherds are afraid, 
So the angels say, fear not. Fear not. Why? Fear not because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Here's a biblical fact that you can either use over Christmas, like dinner, or if you're ever on Jeopardy. The number one command in all of Scripture, fear not. Some 300 plus times in Scripture, humanity is called by the Lord to fear not. And so why, in the presence of an angel, and the glory of the Lord, how in the world could the angels simply say to the shepherds, don't fear? And it's because they say they bring them good news of great joy. That, that word good news is the word gospel. In the Greek, it's euangelion, which literally means good news, which is how we translate gospel. The angels come and say, do not fear. Why? The gospel. You know, one of the things that you'll hear Robert and I say a lot about Redeemer is that we are a gospel-centered church. We, uh, after we planted our last church, we did a a, a kind of a celebration service uh, after one year. And we invited people to come up on stage and just kind of tell how the church had impacted their lives or their, their families or their marriage or, or whatever else. And, and one of my good friends who had been with us from the start got up. And I was like kind of really excited uh, just to, to hear what he was going to say. And, and he got up and, and this is what he said. When we came here, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about hearing the exact same sermon week after week after week after week. But it's been really encouraging. And I, I, I said afterwards, I was like, what? What are you talking about, man? Like we preach from different texts. Every time we go from left to right in the entire book. What are you saying, sermon? And he said, before we came, you told me, I will preach one thing and one thing every single Sunday, and it's the gospel. I said, yeah. And he said, and I just thought to myself, gosh, that's going to be the same sermon every week. Here's a little secret. Robert and I preach the same sermon every single Sunday. It's the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is both the simple and incredibly impactful answer to things like, why do we fear? Because we need the gospel. How do I stop fearing the gospel? Fear not. How? Because the gospel has come. And what gospel is it? It's the gospel of great joy. The Luke is a writer. He uses the exact same word here when he describes joy. Great joy to describe first how the shepherds feared. Great joy fear. It's as if the angels themselves said, the only thing that will drive out great fear is even greater joy. And what Christ has brought to us is joy. The coming of Christ changes our story. And it 
moves us from being a people that are inadequate and feeble and frail and orphaned, and it moves us now to being children who are beloved. Now, it doesn't change anything about the fact that we are feeble and frail and dependent and inadequate. But it changes totally our perspective. Let me give you an example of how that works. Uh, being in ministry, Rachel and I, one of the ways that we just kind of work our way in being a ministry family with a lot of kids is we buy houses and then we fix them up. And two houses ago, we bought a house and it was, it had to be ripped down to the studs. And so over about two and a half months, we, we lived with my parents. We worked every single day with my father and we, we utterly flipped the house from inside to out and then we moved in. And so I'm thinking to myself, man, I can't wait to live in this house. It's going to be amazing. And then we moved in and it rained for the first time. And the entire yard turned into a swimming pool, like a swamp. And I remember going out after one of these summer rains and looking out in our yard, utterly flooded. And I remember panic. I remember thinking like, it's going to ruin everything that we've done. It's going to flood our crawl space. It's going to cause mold. Our kids are going to end up with like emphysema. We're all going to die. I, just, I mean, I didn't quite know that, but we were, I was heading down the road quickly. And then I turned to my left as I look at my flooded yard and soon to be like demolished and destroyed house. And you know what was going on? Two of my kids were having the time of their life in the swamp that was going to kill us. But they were just splashing around, and they were laughing and giggling and having a great old time. And we were sitting or standing in the same context. But for me, all I could think about was the investment that we had put into this house and the money it was going to take to remediate this and the impact it was going to have on our family and how we organized and whether or not we could ever sell this house in the future and my savings were going to go down the drain and we were going to be homeless one day living in a refrigerator box. And my kid was having so much fun and if I would have even told them about the prospect of living in a refrigerator box, they would have been even more over <laughs> Because they, they didn't care about my financial investment. It wasn't their job to provide a house. It wasn't their job to ensure that the financial bank accounts were well stocked. It wasn't their job to ensure that there was food on the table, that, that there was money accumulating in a, a, a retirement plan. They were just being kids who were well-loved and enjoying even the smallest gift from their creator, rain that pooled outside of our house. This is how the gospel changes us from a people of fear to joy. Because now, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, even if it hurts, we know that we find ourselves in the place of being beloved children whose stories are written by a heavenly father who loves us so much that he has come for us. Luke says that we are to fear not. Why? Because we're no longer orphans. We are beloved children. 
And listen, I, I need you to hear this. If you find yourself in a tough season, I'm not downplaying the suffering or difficulty that you may be in. And I'm not even standing here and looking you in the eyes and saying, you must believe it. You must find joy in this circumstance. You must convince yourself that you are beloved. I desire that for you, but here's the beauty of the gospel. It's true even when you don't believe. Christ changes our fear into joy. Second, Christ changes our lowliness into dignity. One of the things I love about growing up in a small town is all of kind of the, the beautiful aspects of being one of only a few people. Right, so in a small town, like, there's one barbershop. And, and the guy that cut my hair when I was in high school is also the guy that cut my kids' hair. And I know the name of his wives, not wives, wife. <laughs> it's a small town, crazy things happen. You know? If he did have wives, I'd know about it. And his kids? Right? In a small town, you walk into a grocery store, I guarantee you, I will one, know the name of the person that checks me out, and two, I will likely meet someone that I have been constantly emailed because they disappeared from church and haven't been shown up with. It's awkward for everybody. Right? But the, the best part, honestly, of growing up in a small town is having a small town newspaper. Like, I don't know how many times you showed up in your small town newspaper, but I showed up in my small town newspaper a lot. And it was rarely in the police block. <laughs> like, they covered every football game and every baseball game and every soccer game. And you didn't have to be a superstar to show up in the paper. They just had to figure out how to cram a week's worth of small town news into one small town paper. But one of the things we would always read through, right, like most people, is you would read through the obituaries, the wedding announcements, and the birth announcements. Because you knew those people. And you would celebrate when people were married, and you would mourn when people passed, and you would celebrate with them when a new child was born. Well, here Luke gives us the birth announcement of Jesus. Now, what does the birth announcement happen? Right, it tells you who was born, it tells you where they were born. It tells you when they were born, and who gives us all that? Who is born? A Savior, Christ the Lord. Where is he born? In the city of David, Bethlehem. When? This day. But then it seems like Luke gets the final piece of the birth announcement a little mixed up. Because you don't just tell who was born and where and when, you also tell to whom. I think that's grammatically correct. They are born. But Luke doesn't say to Mary and Joseph, this day is born. He doesn't even say to God, the Father is this day born, the Son of Man. Who does he say is born to? Jesus, we are told, is born to the shepherd. For unto you, the angel says, is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now think about that for two seconds. 
Not to Mary, not to Joseph, not to the Father, but to the shepherds is who Christ the Savior born this day primarily belongs. To you, the shepherds, to you, the angels declare, is who Jesus has come for. He's come primarily for these lowly shepherds. Listen, sometimes we, we take the, the coming of, of Christ, right, and, and, and his presence lightly. So we have things like uh, T-shirts that say, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. Right? If you have one of those, it's okay. Just don't, like, raise your hand. And I like those shirts. Right? Or I think even in our house, we have, like, a little sign that says, like, all I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. Right? Um, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> But here, here's the deal, right? Like, we live after the coming of Christ, and so we just kind of assume Jesus as a given. But to these shepherds, who were from a people who had been waiting all their lives for the gift of a Savior, the coming of the Messiah, the angels show up and say, He's come, and He's come for you and because of you. Now think about what type of unimaginable position of honor it puts the shepherds in. What type of dignity they are given. And, and next, as if to kind of drive this new position home, we're told that after they announce that the Savior has come for them, we're told then, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts all praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Listen, it seems pretty clear in all of Scripture that the main role of angels was to worship. If you think of some of the predominant scenes of angels in Isaiah chapter 6, this vision that's given to Isaiah, these angelic beings are rotating around the glorious presence of God and they're singing worshiping his glory his holiness in Revelation when John is given a, a, a glimpse into heaven he sees the angels gather around the throne of the Lamb and they are singing of his worth his power, his presence and his glory but in this moment the angels come down to the shepherds and the angels invite the shepherds into their miraculous, amazing role, worshiping the God of the universe. The takeaway here is, is clear. If Christ has come for us, if he has taken on our human form, if we are invited now like the angels into worship because we have experienced him, that we have seen God's presence, then how could we ever be an insignificant and a lowly people when we have been given that dignity and honor? Now listen, I'm not pleading for you to have greater self-esteem. This is a plea simply for you to realize and recognize what you've been given. You have been given the highest dignity 
those created in the image of God, and then those to whom God himself climbed down out of eternity into human flesh in order to come and save. How could you or I ever struggle and strive to make more of ourselves? How could we ever wrestle with insecurity or feelings like we are invaluable when Jesus came for us? There is nothing we could ever do to increase the dignity, honor, and glory that has been given unto us in and through the coming of Christ. Christ has changed our fear into joy, our lowliness into dignity, and finally, he has changed our exile into innocence. You know, upon reading this passage, it, it kind of seems like all the miraculous things end in verse 15. Right after the great song of worship, the coming of the angels, the multitude, the glorious light and the presence of God shining all around them. After verse 14, the angels disappear. But this isn't where miraculous returns to normal. This is where the most miraculous thing happens. Listen to Luke's words. When the angels went away from there into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The shepherds, after the angels disappear, have a small discussion. They take a short jog back into town. They find the stable or home. They walk in. They see Mary and Joseph. And then they stand face to face with God. They stand face to face with God Almighty. Last week, Pastor Robert, as he was describing the impacts of sin, the curse that followed, he read the end of Genesis chapter 3, which I find to be one of the most sorrowful scriptures in all of the Bible. It says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, the, the word garden that describes Garden of Eden doesn't primarily conjure up in its original meaning uh, thoughts of, of lush or, or green. The, the word garden literally means enclosed place. A garden, if you look up that same word in antiquity, 
oftentimes describes the place just outside of a palace. A place that was private where the king would walk and could invite other people of honor in to walk and be with him. Garden didn't primarily describe a place, it primarily described a place that belonged to a person. And Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. It uses the term drove. It, it's, it's the same term that, that, that you would use for beasts of the field, cattle, to drive them. It's as if in that moment Adam and Eve recognized what they were about to leave, lose by being driven away from the presence of God. You can almost imagine the scene, them saying, I, I, we don't want to go, I'm sorry, we, 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 we won't do it again. And the Lord God said, you can't, you can't be in my presence anymore. Because of sin, you can't be with me. And he drives them out and he places a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword to ensure that mankind couldn't get back When Adam and Eve lost the garden, they lost the Lord. They were exiled from Him. And the pages of Scripture tell the story that no matter how hard humanity tried, they couldn't get back to Him. No obedience was good enough. No sacrifice was sufficient. No conquest or worship. No position or of power was enough. Even Moses, a man that was called the friend of God, when he asked to see the Lord face to face, we're told that the Lord God said, you can't. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. I will pass before you and you will see the shadow of my back. We couldn't get to him. We couldn't be with him because of sin. But this time, an angel comes. And this angel doesn't announce that we have been forever exiled from God, but because God has come to us, we have been invited back in. The shepherds come and they stand face to face with God in human form. And this, of course, was just the beginning of the invitation back in. Still, these shepherds were sinful men. And still, until Jesus would fulfill what he has come for, could not fully be for all eternity in the presence of God. But Jesus did come, and he did live, and he did die, and he did complete his work. Jesus lying in a stone manger was the invitation back to the Lord. And Jesus lying on a stone tomb after his crucifixion finally broke down forever. Anything else that would bar us from the presence of God. And now for us, there's never again to be exiled. It will never be true of you that you are truly isolated. It will never again be true for those of us in Christ that we are truly alone. You can feel those things, but they are no longer true for us. We have the very presence of the Lord, first in the coming of Christ, now with the indwelling of His Spirit, and eventually, by God's grace, soon face to face with the Father forever. 
Listen, Christmas is different for everybody. Some people have lost loved ones, and celebrating a holiday like this, it's hard. Some people are drawing to the end of a year that they would love to never have to live again. And some people are in a place of celebrating, of easily seeing and experiencing the goodness of God's gift. But at its core, Christmas is the same message for all of us. It's the celebration that God is with us, that He has come for us, and He has given us and have given us unfading, imperishable hope in Christ Jesus. I pray that this season, by God's grace, and that for the rest of your life, you might experience the hope that we have in Christ. Fear not. Because the gospel is coming. Pray with me.